traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For the most part, gambling is illegal in Japan, and the Japanese are wary of it. It can be addictive and has a whiff of the criminal underworld about it. But casinos are now legal, and the government wants to let the world's biggest casino operators in. And globalization has ensured that most spirits can be found everywhere, but you won't find tequila in India. So one cocktail enthusiast on returning home from America has fired up a still and is making agave spirit. Just don't call it tequila. But first... Today, NATO defense ministers will conclude their meetings in Brussels, ahead of a security summit that starts in Munich tomorrow. The two-day summit comes as the defense alliance is increasingly under the spotlight. President Donald Trump has long complained that European governments aren't pulling their own weight when it comes to spending and troop deployments. They are really sort of letting us down in that one respect, and we don't want people taking advantage of the United States. He wants NATO to take a more leading role in the Middle East. In response, ministers have agreed, in principle, to take over some of the training in Iraq that's currently being carried out by a U.S.-led coalition against Islamic State. It's not clear whether more NATO troops will be deployed or whether more NATO partners will be drafted into Iraq. What is clear is that the alliance is bending to international pressure. NATO in the past two or three years has had a pretty difficult time of it, um, partly because of Donald Trump's pressures on it from the White House. Uh, He's been pushing very hard, harder than perhaps any previous president, for NATO members to be spending more money uh, to carry their fair share of the burden, as he would put it. Daniel Franklin is The Economist's diplomatic editor. But also there have been other criticisms, notably recently President Macron of France, in an interview with The Economist, talked of NATO experiencing brain death. So there's been a lot of questions about NATO's future. So NATO came in for this kind of criticism even before the Trump era? Before uh, Donald Trump came to the White House, NATO was under pressure because of external reasons more than internal ones. It was under pressure because of Russia's actions in Ukraine in particular. So there was always a bit of a disconnect between the level of activity of NATO in response to the increased pressure it felt from Russia and the criticism it was getting from the White House in particular when Donald Trump came to power. Broadly, then, the perception is of, of a NATO that is, that is struggling. Yes, I think that's right. But there have been changes of late, which I think are more encouraging for NATO. First of all, uh, Donald Trump himself has been uh, changing his tone somewhat. He's been keen to trumpet NATO's increased 
spending promises as a as a triumph for for his pressure, saying that no other president has uh, achieved what he's achieved. Uh, he's turned into something of a NATO uh, booster or boaster rather than a NATO basher. Um, and a new big survey of attitudes to NATO uh, countries by uh, Pew Research Center is reasonably encouraging, I think, for the organization. In, in what way? Well, uh, the Pew survey suggests that support for NATO among populations in among the NATO member states uh, is reasonably strong. 53% say they are, have a favorable attitude towards NATO. Uh, only 27% have an unfavorable attitude. If it was an organization that was struggling with a perception problem, now it doesn't seem to be. What's different? Well, I think there are still perception problems. If you delve deeper into uh, the Pew survey, there are some also some less good signs for NATO. Uh, in certain countries, support over a 10-year horizon has dropped quite sharply. In France, for example, there's been a 21-point uh, drop over that uh, over that period. In Germany, too, a quite a sizable drop. Even in the United States, uh, although the level of support for NATO uh, favorability rating of just over half is about the average over the period from uh, 2009 to 2016. It's quite a sharp drop from the past couple of years where support had spiked. And there are a couple of NATO member states where, where unfavorable attitudes to the, uh, to the alliance uh, remain very strong, and that's Greece and Turkey. So it's, a, it's very much of a mixed picture, but I do think there has been uh, a revival in NATO's fortunes partly because the political sense uh, pressures from America uh, have eased somewhat in recent times. So how much do you think these troop deployment promises and spending changes are down to pressure from the likes of Presidents Trump and Macron? Well, NATO was going to be increasing its spending anyway, but the problem was that it was not living up to the promises that it itself had made. The, the pledge that the NATO members had, had, had made um, back after the the uh, uh, Russian uh, move into Ukraine and uh, the annexation of Crimea was to spend uh, at a minimum 2% of GDP on defence. And only a few countries uh, were doing that. The promise was to do this by 2024. Some countries, in particular Germany, were uh, not going to achieve that. Uh, America was complaining, as indeed American presidents have done repeatedly down the decades. But the difference this time was that Donald Trump did it with a, a vehemence, uh, a persistence, and I think a, 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 a sense of threat, even to the point of threatening to pull out of NATO if the other allies didn't shape up. Um, that was a degree of pressure that NATO had not faced before. And I think perhaps to some extent that has um, accounted for um, at least some of the increased spending. Mr. Trump's complaint seemed uh, wholly focused on everyone paying their own fair share about, about money concerns. Is there more to it than that? Yes, I think there is more to it than that. I think um, President Trump has also started to see that NATO can be useful to him in, in a number of ways. One way is by spending more. It's something that he can chalk up as a success for him, and he mentioned it in his State of the Union uh, address. We're also getting our allies, finally, to help pay their fair share. I have raised contributions from other NATO members by more than $400 billion.
So it's, it's not just what's fair and equitable. He's looking for NATO members to relieve pressure on America's forces. In the wake of the killing in January of uh, Qasem Soleimani, a top Iranian general, uh, he actually asked NATO or said that he wanted NATO to do more in the Middle East. So far from NATO being something that was that, 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 whose existence was under threat, he wanted it to step up and come and do more. So it's ever since then, um, NATO itself has been busily looking at what it could do um, in Iraq in particular. Uh, but now um, defence ministers are meeting this week and they're going to be looking at uh, proposals to increase the NATO training operation uh, in Iraq, perhaps quite substantially. And as those defence ministers meet today, what else will they be trying to hammer out? Uh, well, there's a lot on the agenda for defence ministers. There's um, the question of Afghanistan, the um, uh, intention, the Trump administration's intention is to draw down America's uh, presence in Af- Afghanistan. President Trump would like to get those those troops home, and that affects NATO, which also has a mission in Afghanistan. Uh, there's the broader question of how to respond to um, Russia's build-up of new weaponry. Um, Vladimir Putin has been busily investing in his uh, arsenal, and in particular with, with the ending of the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, the INF Treaty, um, there are any lingering constraints about what he can put into place of really uh, come off. And uh, NATO is having to think not just about the INF implications, but also the broader response to, to, to the Russian build-up. So there's plenty for um, defence types to get their heads around, not only at the meeting of ministers in Brussels uh, now, but also when the broader gathering at the Munich Security Conference starts uh, on Friday. Daniel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. In Japan, many forms of gambling are illegal. There are exceptions, among them the arcade game Pachinko. And in 2018, casinos were legalized. The decision hasn't gone down well with many Japanese people who worry about gambling addiction and the influence of organized crime. That unease worsened in December when a cabinet minister was arrested over allegations of taking bribes from companies eyeing casino projects in the country. In spite of growing public concern, the Japanese government still seems to think it's worth a roll of the dice. Well, it sees casinos as a way to attract more foreign tourists and also as a way to reinvigorate local economies, particularly around places where the population is falling. David McNeil reports for The Economist from Tokyo. So they legalized casinos in 2018, partly because of those reasons. Um, The problem for them at the moment is uh, that public opinion is quite heavily against them. Um, Now, the biggest casino operators in the world 
That includes MGM Resorts and Las Vegas Sands. They're all jockeying for a license. And the sums that they're talking about are quite considerable. So Morgan Stanley released a report last year where they estimated that uh, annual revenue could be around 15 to $16 billion. And then there's a lot more money, of course, for the contracts to build these integrated resorts. And just to be clear, these are family resorts. This is the sort of thing that the Japanese government has in mind. They would have hotels, conference centers, restaurants, and the casinos themselves would be around 3% of the overall uh, floor space uh, that's legally sort of binding. And that's the way that they're selling them to people. And for some local governments, those figures that I've just mentioned are irresistible. So I, I was down in Nagasaki a couple of weeks ago talking to the vice governor, uh, Hirata Ken. He sees these integrated resorts as a way to sort of bring jobs to the prefecture and to stop young people leaving for Tokyo. Uh, and their problem is quite common in Japan. The prefecture of Nagasaki is going to shrink by about 100,000 people uh, in the next decade. And what they propose to do down there is to put the casino in a, in a sort of fading family resort, which is modeled on, believe it or not, on Amsterdam. They have a resort down there with canals windmills and cheese factories and uh, it's seen better days and what they want to do is to bring the casino in there and hopefully bring in uh, uh, plenty of tourists, particularly from China. But you say that the public sentiment towards casinos is not nearly as good as, as these local government officials seem to think. Actually, Nagasaki is a bit of an exception. Down there, they have less opposition than most. But generally, the polls for the whole of Japan show that opposition is running at about two-thirds relatively little public support. And the reason is partly because of gambling. People fear that these resorts could bring uh, gambling addictions. And Japan already has a problem with gambling because of pachinko parlors. Uh, Pachinko is a variant of pinball. Uh, Everybody who's been to Japan sees these very noisy pachinko parlors on every high street. And those gambling addictions affect already about 3 million people. And then the other issue which people talk about is gangsters, Yakuza gangsters, a very powerful organized crime groups here, although we have to say declining. Many people fear that they will muscle in on casinos and bring crime and so on. So when I was in Yokohama, for example, there was a demonstration outside of the conference, an integrated resort conference with local people sort of citing those exact things. If we have these casinos, they'll bring in Yakuza. We'll have more people with gambling addictions. There'll be more crime. And then the other thing they said was that all the money that we have in this country or a lot of the money that we have will be siphoned off to these sort of rich American casinos. So they're not very happy. And how's the government trying to tackle that negative public opinion? Well, obviously, the attempt to sell casinos to an already reluctant Japanese public is not helped by the fact that there is now a political scandal involving a minister who was at one point in charge of casino policy. On Christmas Day, Akimoto Tsukasa was arrested on allegations of bribery. What seems to have happened is that a Chinese company offered him bribes and gifts uh, and so on to uh, smooth the path for a casino in Hokkaido in Japan's north. Akimoto says that he did nothing wrong. What he says is that he was remunerated for speeches by this company and he says he instructed his staff to pay for the China trip 
uh, or pay for the cost, but say they neglected to do so because of an oversight. The bribery scandal is still going on. Akimoto is still in prison. Uh, and it has also ensnared five or six other politicians, all of which seems to confirm for people who are already skeptical of casinos that they uh, spread uh, corruption. And I don't think it will help the government's case as it tries to pursue this policy. And do you think that in turn will have any sort of net effect on whether or not these things get built, these these huge resorts? Well, you could argue that it already has. In fact, some people uh, do argue that. So it has uh, already pushed back the timeline and the government says it won't even begin considering those submissions until next year. Uh, and that's uh, arguably a casualty of this bribery scandal. Some potential hosts are getting cold feet. Ochiba and Hokkaido, the two places that have pulled out in the last month or so, uh, they were already had problems. Both of them have said that they want to focus resources on disaster management and that they feel that the casino issue is a distraction, political and economic distraction. But my sense, and I think the sense of the people I've talked to, is that the problems the bribery scandals, the cost and the sort of issues that people talk about that I've just cited, they will slow uh, the casino train, but they won't derail it. Um, I think what will probably happen is that eventually these licenses will be awarded, uh, but they won't come as soon as people would like. The initial projection was that people would actually start opening casinos in the middle of this uh, decade. Um, it's probably going to be pushed back now towards the end of the decade. That's what the the best uh, projections seem to say. David, thank you very much for your time. Thanks for having me. Around the world, mezcal is having a moment. Sales of the Mexican spirit are booming, increasing five-fold between 2011 and 2017. But it's still not available everywhere pushing one man to mix up his own local alternative in India. You drive over red, dusty plains through fencing of agave. It's in a bit of India that actually does look like the countryside of Highland, Mexico. Alex Trevelli is our Asian news editor and went on a spirited reporting trip for 1843, The Economist's sister magazine. And then you see this bizarre, basically homemade water tower in the shape of a giant martini glass. Then you've arrived. And what is it that they're, they're making at this distillery? At this distillery, they make a variety of craft distilled liquors, actually. The one that, that drew me is Desmond and India's own and only 100% Indian agave spirits. Agave spirit, like, like Indian tequila or mezcal? You cannot call it either tequila or mezcal because both of those things, by law and by custom, must be made in Mexico and Mexico only. But if you were allowed to, you might call it Indian tequila. So why is anybody going to the trouble of making it then? Well, the Mexican stuff is not very widely available in India. For one thing, you have to pay horrific import duties. For two, there's just not much of a local market for it. Uh, so your, your choices as a tippler in India are, are somewhat limited and expensive. So how, how is it that, uh, that these dusty plains of India should be host to, a, to a, essentially a, a tequila dis distillery? Well, it all comes down to one man. It's the story of this somewhat eccentric, certainly very unusual character named Desmond Nazareth. He spent, I think, 18 years working in the U.S. When he moved back to his native India, 
in the year 2000, he was struck by the fact that uh, it was hard to find a margarita or to make your own margaritas at home because you had to import tequila and, and there just wasn't much of it going around. One thing led to another and all these years later, he's uh, India's foremost expert in the stuff and, and certainly the only one who's reverse engineered the making of it. And so have you tried India's answer to tequila then? Is it any good? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a fan. Uh, it definitely competes with the best, if not the very, very best uh, that I've had from Mexico. And so if India has uh, its own answer to tequila then, and international options are eye-wateringly expensive, then the market must be pretty good. Yeah, insofar as there's a market for agave spirits, it's not so bad. Uh, but, you know, you face this problem, which is people ask you, what is this? And you have to say Indian agave spirits. Now, mezcal hasn't really made it big in India yet, although urban drinkers might well know tequila. So you're sort of faced with a mouthful when it comes to explaining what Desmond G is. No one in the world, let alone in India, is looking for agave spirits. So is the business going to survive? I mean, is there, is there enough of a market for it to, to, to warrant having this big distillery in the desert? Yeah, it's, it's doing all right, actually. For the time being, it's chugging along. They do have an idea about how to grow the business, and that is to turn a different actual heritage spirit of India, which is called Mahua, into a bottled, commercially viable spirit that people in India would want to buy. It's a taste fresh from the Indian forests, from a sweet flowering tree. And also it's a drink that people abroad who may never have heard of it before might also like to try if they're at all curious about what the traditional, even ancient drinking culture of India has to offer. Alex, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. Thanks very much. You can find Alex's and more stories of an extraordinary world in the February-March issue of 1843 on Newsstands Now. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash radio offer. 12 issues for $12 or £12. See you back here tomorrow. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.